Well, good morning to everyone and greetings in the precious name of Jesus. I'd like to begin with the last verse in the book of Romans. And there it says, To God only wise be glory through Jesus Christ forever. Amen. To God only wise. And the title of my message is the wisdom of God. I have in the recent past had several other messages about the attributes of God, and this is one of those messages on the wisdom of God. Now, as we consider the wisdom of God, The more we learn about his wisdom, the more our own wisdom diminishes and becomes very small in our own sight. The wisdom of God. Now, the scripture also talks about the foolishness of God. Would one of you brothers uh, like to tell us what the Bible says about the foolishness of God. Yes, that's right. It's wiser than men. And I believe what he's saying there is that if we could conceive or think that there was any sort of foolishness with God, if such a thing were possible, it would still exceed the highest wisdom that man has. And therefore, it's foolishness for us to think that we could explain what the foolishness of God might be if such a thing did exist. In that uh, passage that was read in the beginning uh, about Job, at the end of that passage it says... uh, Job didn't sin with his lips, nor charge God foolishly. And my center reference described that last phrase there, charge God foolishly, as having the sense of not attributing folly to God. Job didn't accuse God or think that God had done something unwise. Even though Job could not understand it, he could not explain it, it it puzzled him no end, it seemed, if you read through that account. Why would God allow the righteous to suffer and yet allow the wicked to go on in, in prosperity? And so on, his lament went. But it tells us that he did not charge God foolishly. He did not ascribe folly to God. Is 
there is a danger for us to charge God foolishly or to think that somehow God has overlooked or neglected something, something in my life that God should have done differently or in, in our way of thinking, we, we are prone to fall into that trap of thinking that God could maybe have done something better. But the wisdom of God is without... Um, It's beyond our comprehension in its extent. His wisdom reaches to the heavens uh, along with his mercy and his goodness. But the scripture does admonish us to think about the wisdom of God and it, it gives us some details. I'd like to start in Psalm 104. Psalm 104, it speaks of the creation of God, and in verse 24 it says, O Lord, how manifold are thy works! In wisdom hast thou made them all. The earth is full of thy riches. Now I do want to read this psalm and make some comment on it as we just marvel at the wisdom of God. There is a hymn in our book, number 127, which seems to be taken in most of its thoughts there from this psalm, one we're very familiar with, I Sing the Mighty Power of God. So after I read this psalm, I would like to sing this hymn, number 127. Uh, before I make much comment on this psalm. So let's read here in Psalm 104. Bless the Lord, O my soul. O Lord my God, thou art very great. Thou art clothed with honor and majesty, who covers thyself with light as with a garment, who stretchest out the heavens like a curtain. Who layeth the beams of his chambers in the waters, who maketh the clouds his chariot, who walketh upon the wings of the wind. Who maketh his angels spirits, his ministers a flaming fire. Who laid the foundations of the earth, that it should not be removed forever. Thou coverest it with the deep as with a garment, the waters stood above the mountains. At thy rebuke they fled, at the voice of thy thunder they hasted away. They go up by the mountains, they go down by the valleys unto the place which thou hast founded for them. Thou hast set a bound that they may not pass over, that they turn not again to cover the earth. He sendeth the springs into the valleys which run among the hills. They give drink to every beast of the field, the wild asses quench their thirst. By them shall the fowls of the heaven have their habitation. 
which sing among the branches. He watereth the hills from his chambers. The earth is satisfied with the fruit of thy works. He causeth the grass to grow for the cattle and herb for the service of man, that he may bring forth food out of the earth. And wine that maketh glad the heart of man, and oil to make his face to shine, and bread which strengtheneth man's heart. The trees of the Lord are full of sap, the cedars of Lebanon which he hath planted. Where the birds make their nests, as for the stork, the fir trees are her house. The high hills are a refuge for the wild goats, and the rocks for the conies. He appointed the moon for seasons, the sun knoweth his going down. Thou makest darkness, and it is night, wherein all the beasts of the forest do creep forth. The young lions roar after their prey and seek their meat from God. The sun ariseth, they gather themselves together and lay them down in their dens. Man goeth forth unto his work and to his labor until the evening. O Lord, how manifold are thy works! In wisdom hast thou made them all. The earth is full of thy riches. So is this great and wide sea wherein are things creeping innumerable, both small and great beasts. There go the ships, there is that Leviathan whom thou hast made to play therein. These, all, these wait all upon thee, that thou mayest give them their meat in due season. Thus, that thou givest them, they gather. Thou openest thine hand, they are filled with good. Thou hidest thy face, they are troubled. Thou takest away their breath, they die, and return to their dust. Thou sendest forth thy spirit, they are created, and thou renewest the face of the earth. The glory of the Lord shall endure forever. The Lord shall rejoice in his works. He looketh on the earth, and it trembleth. He toucheth the hills, and they smoke. I will sing unto the Lord as long as I live. I will sing praise to my God while I have my being. My meditation of him shall be sweet. I will be glad in the Lord. Let the sinners be consumed out of the earth, and let the wicked be no more. Bless thou the Lord, O my soul. Praise ye the Lord. I would like to sing this hymn, 127, and consider the wisdom of God. Now it's intertwined with his power and we can be grateful that God who is infinite in power is also infinite in wisdom because we know that power out of control is very damaging. But God in wisdom has his power in its, its proper bounds as we think of it, although there is no bounds really, but everything that God does is perfect. As we think about the wisdom of God as it's expressed in nature, I want to consider a bit of that, but then we want to also turn to the New Testament and see how that can be applied and how we should consider that for our own lives. But let's sing this hymn, number 127. Uh, Brother, 
Randall, could you lead that for us? Could we all stand as we sing in praise to God? I sing the mighty power of God that made the mountains rise, that spread the flowing seas abroad and built the lofty skies. I sing the wisdom that ordained the sun to shines full at his command, and all the stars obey. I sing the goodness of the Lord that filled the earth with food. He formed the creatures with his word, and then pronounced them Bless the Lord, O my soul. O Lord my God, thou art very great. And then the writer here lists a number of things that display the mighty power and wisdom of God. And we also marvel as we think about that in the hymn we sang. It said, uh, where I turn my eyes, if I gaze upon the ground I tread or into the skies, you know, his wonders are on display. It talks about laying the beams of his chambers in the waters. Verse 3. Maketh the clouds his chariot, who walketh upon the wings of the wind. Those are so far above us in might and power, we, we scarcely comprehend even the, the scope of them. And he makes the clouds his chariot. He can just ride upon it. 
who maketh his angels spirits, his ministers a flaming fire, who laid the foundations of the earth, that it should not be removed forever. Just day after day, year after year, the earth goes through its orbit. It's been hung upon nothing, and yet it has foundations that are unshakable. Verse 6, Thou coverest it with the deep as with a garment. The water stood above the mountains. Well, there was only one occasion that we have recorded where the water stood above the mountains, and that was at the time of the flood. It seems he's referring to that here. Verse 7, At thy rebuke they fled. At the voice of thy thunder they hasted away. So he's talking about that flood where the water stood above the mountains and then at the word of the Lord those waters retreated. Verse 8, they go up by the mountains, they go down by the valleys unto the place which thou hast founded for them. And there we have a bit of a hint as to how a lot of the landscape on the earth was formed just at the end of the flood where the waters hasted away. And here they go up by the mountains uh, in verse 8 there. Uh, My center reference describes it as the mountains ascend, the valleys descend. It seems like at that time the mountains were thrust up and the valleys sank low. And some of the major landscape that we see today was formed post-flood as these waters went away. But now we look at those mountains and we think of them as immovable. It takes a lot to move a mountain, doesn't it? (laughs) I mean, they just seem like that permanent fixture that's, that's there, and yet God set them all in their place and in their order, and while the current climate and conditions can alter it in small ways, for the most part, they stay there as unmovable. Verse 9, thou hast set a bound that they may not pass over, that they turn not again to cover the earth. That's referring to the waters he was talking about that hasted away at the end of the flood. God set a bound that they not come back. Aren't you glad? Aren't you glad there's a boundary for the waters? Oh, yes, we know what floods are. They come and they go in small places, but what destruction they can bring in a short space of time as they sweep away whatever man has built. Um, But it's only for a small space and a little time. It doesn't come and destroy the entire earth again. Verse 10, he sendeth the springs into the valleys which run among the hills. And in verse 13, he watereth the hills from his chamber. The earth is satisfied with the fruit of thy works. 
there are several things we might take from that, but if you consider the whole cycle of waters, how the rain comes down on the earth and the rivers run to the sea, and yet the sea is never full, and yet it comes back to water the earth, and he even established springs in the tops of the mountains where the waters continually come out, why is there no end to those waters? Wouldn't the hill run dry eventually? As we think of water gathered in a heap, it all finds its low place. Why don't the springs just diminish until there's no more water in the hill? But yet God has designed that the waters go up They give drink to every beast of the field. The wild asses quench their thirst. By them shall the fowls of the heaven have their habitation, which sing among the branches. Verse 14, He causeth the grass to grow for the cattle and herb for the service of man, that he may bring forth food out of the earth. Isn't it amazing how God made all of the plants? And again, the hymn spoke about there's not a plant or flower below that doesn't sing his glory. Job referred to this same thing. He talked about the earth bringing forth food for man. And then he said that it also brings forth fire. How is it that out of the same earth comes forth food for man and yet fire, as is evidenced in volcanoes? Aren't you glad that volcanoes have their boundaries? Yet it's evident that deep in the earth there's fire. I mean serious fire that would destroy us if it burst forth. And yet that same earth brings forth food for our sustenance and our uh, enjoyment. Verse 14, He bringeth forth food out of the earth and wine that maketh glad the heart of man and oil to make his face to shine and bread which strengtheneth man's heart. A lot of variation in food. He mentions wine, oil that makes his face to shine. You know how we rub oils on our skin to make it healthy and well. And and we have bread which gives us strength to work. Wine to make glad the heart of man. And actually I'm not sure... The scripture does talk about the danger of oil or wine that turneth itself aright. It shouldn't be fermented. Um, But it's true that we enjoy food. And I think what he's doing here is listing several variations of how these plants benefit us. And God made that all to work. And we can look at an individual item, be it a type of grass or a tree or grain that brings forth something and marvel at it by itself, and yet God made all these things to work together. The 
We'll see a bit of that in the New Testament. Uh, We should learn from it. But the trees of the Lord here in verse 16 are full of sap. The cedars of Lebanon which he hath planted. Where the birds make their nests. As for the stork, the fir trees are her house. Now trees are very amazing. And he mentions several of the uses here for a tree. He talks about them being full of sap. And as men have studied how trees grow and what they're like, how they go through their life cycle and have studied what sap does, sap is that juice is inside the tree. And they move the water from the ground into the leaves and have like an internal pump that's um, difficult to explain, but it pumps massive amounts of water up into the tree, into the leaves, and the leaves in turn receive um, energy from the sun and convert it into sap, and this whole thing just goes through a cycle. You know what's amazing about sap in trees, most trees, especially the ones that live in this area, they are all capable of living even through a winter. And it has to do with the sap. A plant that is what we call an annual or only grows for a year and then dies, one of the reasons they die is because when frost comes, the juices that are in the plant freeze. When that freezes, the cell walls of the plant burst and perish, and so the plant dies. That's why if your tomatoes are caught by a late frost in your garden, you have to replant because they die. Why don't the trees die? They live in that same climate, and we say they go dormant. But what happens is that the sap that's in the tree has a high sugar content. And wood, having a bit of an insulating property, this sap, uh, the combination of that insulation of the bark and the high sugar content in the sap, that liquid does not freeze like the other plants that perish when it freezes. And the cell wall does not burst. The freezing point of that is much lower and it's also not as firm as just regular ice. It has a bit of a texture that prevents those cell walls from bursting. And guess what? Men have discovered that that sweet sap actually is good when it comes from a maple tree and you boil it down to its essence and you have a sweetness that will flavor your pancakes. (laughs) Isn't that amazing? And during the summer, that same tree is is the house for the squirrel and the birds and the and all the other beasts of the field. You see how that all so amazingly works together. Just amazing. I mean, the tree by itself is is simply astounding. But when you think of all the uses that it 
it goes to in its lifespan is, you know, and then men cut it down and they're warmed by the fire or they saw it up and put it together and make a, um, a habitation to protect us and chairs to sit on and, and on and on it goes. And God makes them to spring forth Verse 18, the high hills are a refuge for the wild goats and the rocks for the conies. Well, before I get too far from trees, I want to add this. In the past few years, I've been doing a bit more study about plants and growth and gardening and how to get uh, better crops and, and more of them. And as men have studied these things, they found some amazing truths concerning trees and plants. They've discovered that plants and trees have a symbiotic relationship with a fungus. They call it mycorrhizal fungi. It has Greek words that mean fungus and roots. They work together. And as they've studied it, they discover now these are two separate organisms. There's the fungus and there's the plant with its roots. But they work together in such an amazing way that sometimes entire systems with numerous species can actually work together such that they can transport water, they transport nutrients, and other chemicals that are transferred even from one species to another via this connecting network of mycorrhizal fungi. And there are various sorts, even they've, they've identified, I think, up to, I don't know, is it a dozen or more various species of this fungi that actually have a relationship with the roots of the trees. And when you talk about networking, I mean, you can forget about the World Wide Web. It has nothing on this network of mycorrhizal fungi that they have discovered actually transports water from a plant that's next to the stream up into the hillside where they are distant from the water, and that's how some of the plants up in the hill get water. It's because of this interaction. And not only water, but also other nutrients. And it is so complex that it almost boggles the mind. And you need a little bit of education to even understand some of the words they're using. But it all works together. So no matter how minute you get down to the cellular level of plants or of humans, the amazing power of God and the wisdom of God. How did God make all this work together? Let's read on here. He appointed the moon for seasons. The sun knoweth his going down. Thou makest darkness, and it is night, wherein all the beasts of the forest do creep forth. 
The young lions roar after their prey and seek their meat from God. The sun ariseth, they gather themselves together and lay them down in their dens. Man goeth forth unto his work and to his labor unto the evening. You know, men tend to think highly of their accomplishments. And of the recent ones, you may have followed in the news how that men have sent a spaceship to Mars. And they actually landed a spacecraft on Mars, and they have, on this spacecraft, they had a drone that could fly out from the spacecraft and take pictures of Mars. We think, wow. How can they, how can they do that? This big planet that we only see as a tiny a spot of light in the sky, and they send this spacecraft over there and land it on that, and then have this little drone fly around taking pictures. And, and men are really excited about such an accomplishment. And in its own right, it is astounding. But think about who made that in the first place. The one who made that planet knows what's on it. He already sees that. He's, he's knowing it from the beginning. He keeps that planet in its place. He so ordered it that it keeps its position such that they can actually send a spacecraft and, and meet up with this planet. And so man's great wisdom and might is only a minuscule portion of that great red planet. So verse 24, O Lord, how manifold are thy works in wisdom. In wisdom hast thou made them all. The earth is full of thy riches. And I don't think mankind has yet come anywhere close to exhausting the riches that God has already put in the earth. If you consider a recent technology, that of drones, I remember a time when this little mobile drone didn't exist. Now, there was aircraft long before I was born and some of that technology, but it's only in recent decades that they've put all these various parts together and the remote control, and so you can have this little drone that flies around and does some amazing things. And we, we can put it to various uses that are helpful and even some that are damaging, but these little drones are kind of fun, aren't they? But you know what a drone can't do? The one thing a drone can't do is it can't um, produce its own energy, nor can it go and find it. In other words, like the birds do, you know, that were made way back when. The birds have much more abilities than the drone does, and not only that, they can go out and forage and get their own food and continue year after year, whereas the drone has to come back and be recharged has to come back to its station, and you've got to put a fresh battery in. 
And lastly, drones do not produce after their own kind. You can make a factory that churns out thousands or even millions of them, but they are just dead. They cannot produce after their kind, and yet the birds can. One bird produces another bird. So, again, the foolishness of God is wiser than men. Verse 25, so is this great and wide sea wherein are things creeping innumerable, both small and great beasts, and so on. He does mention... This key point, though, in all of these marvelous things, he says, verse 27, These wait all upon thee, that thou mayest give them their meat in due season. That thou givest them they gather, thou openest thine hand, they are filled with good. Thou hidest thy face, they are troubled. Thou takest away their breath, they die and return to their dust. In the New Testament, we're told that all things are upheld by the word of his power. So not only did he create this, he also made it to work together in amazing ways, and it's upheld by the word of his power. I will sing unto the Lord as long as I live. I will sing praise unto my God while I have my being. My meditation of him shall be sweet. I will be glad in the Lord. Can you rejoice today in the wisdom of God? The wisdom of God. Now let's turn to the New Testament. In 1 Corinthians, I'm sorry, in 2 Corinthians, no. I look at my notes here. It is 1 Corinthians. 1 Corinthians. In 1 Corinthians... In the latter part of the chapter, it talks about the wisdom of God. It has a lot to say about the wisdom of God. This is 1 Corinthians chapter 1. But I'd like to start with the context. And I think we could make some application for us today. 1 Corinthians 1, verse 10, it says, Now I beseech you, brethren, by the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, that ye all speak the same thing, and that there be no divisions among you, but that ye be perfectly joined together in the same mind and in the same judgment. For it hath been declared unto me of you, my brethren, by them which are of the house of Chloe, that there are contentions among you. Now this I say, that every one of you saith, I am of Paul, and I of Apollos, and I of Cephas, and I of Christ. Is Christ divided? 
Was Paul crucified for you, or were ye baptized in the name of Paul? I thank God that I baptized none of you but Crispus and Gaius, lest any should say that I had baptized in mine own name. And I baptized also the household of Stephanus. Besides, I know not whether I baptized any other. For Christ sent me not to baptize, but to preach the gospel, not with wisdom of words, lest the cross of Christ should be made of non-effect. For the preaching of the cross is to them that perish foolishness, but unto us which are saved it is the power of God. For it is written, I will destroy the wisdom of the wise and will bring to nothing the understanding of the prudent. Now I want to read an extensive portion here through the next several chapters, but I'd like to just make some comment as we go along. What is Paul saying here? He starts out by uh, talking to them about a need and reproving them for their dissension and saying how they should be perfectly joined together in the same mind and in the same judgment. And then he asks these rhetorical questions. Was Christ divided? Was Paul crucified for you? And somehow they had gotten into some contentions about following one or certain man, it seems, in verse 12. Every one of you saith, I am of Paul, and I of Apollos. And they had factions. They had, they had feelings. They had some contentions. So he asks these rhetorical questions. Were you baptized in the name of Paul? Of course the answer is no. They were baptized in the name of Christ. And then he just mentions that he only baptized a few people. And he could scarcely even remember I mean, he could even list, as best he recalled, the few that he baptized, and besides that, he couldn't think of any others. Now, stop and think a bit as he's going through this. Did Paul not believe in baptism? Or did he think it had of small importance? The answer is no. Paul was not minimizing baptism at all, nor was he saying that there was only a few people baptized. What he's saying is that he himself had only baptized a few. And therefore, men should not look to him as the one who is this great one who baptizes. Why? Because he said, Christ sent me not to baptize, but to preach the gospel. That was Paul's mission, was preaching. And other people did the baptizing. He's not minimizing baptism. He's, not, uh, he's just saying that his mission was to preach. And it was not with wisdom of words. And in the following verses, he's, he's going to go into detail about the difference between man's wisdom and God's wisdom. And he says here, 
that it's not with wisdom of words, lest the cross of Christ should be made of none effect. And then he talks about the cross of Christ. As he says there in verse 18, the preaching of the cross is to them that perish foolishness. But unto us which are saved, it is the power of God. Now he's talking about some spiritual realities here. The preaching of the cross, just in a human way of thinking about it or of considering it, it seems foolishness. How can the preaching of the cross do anything? But we know from this passage and others that there is a power in the preaching of the gospel. It has power. It has power to change men's lives. It's a power that can't be explained. It does not come by human reasoning to think that this is going to affect anything, but we know that it does. It changes men's lives. It motivates them to do things they would not do otherwise. It changes their character as nothing else can. The preaching of the cross is to them that perish foolishness, but to us who are saved it is the power of God. For it is written, I will destroy the wisdom of the wise and will bring to nothing the understanding of the prudent. Where is the wise? Where is the scribe? Where is the disputer of this world? Hath not God made foolish the wisdom of this world? For after that, in the wisdom of God, the world by wisdom knew not God. It pleased God by the foolishness of preaching to save them that believe. Now just for an example of that, I made reference to the, some of the amazing things about trees and mycorrhizal fungi. And, and one thing I've learned in studying some of these books is that those who do it from a non-biblical worldview or non-Christian view often tend to attribute these amazing things to just some general power or the, the Mother Earth they'll talk about and all kinds of things that refuse to give uh, acknowledgement to God. And you really have to sort through that as you're, as you're studying this and realize that all of these things were created by God. They're only vaguely understood and researched by men. And it's all kept by the power of God. It's not some obscure, um, unknowable force out there, not just the life force and all the other terms and ideas they come up with. It is God that made these things. But it says that after in the wisdom of God, the world by wisdom knew not God. Isn't it sad that men can study the minutest detail about the marvelous creation of God and yet not give God the glory? 
And yet, it's plain here that that happens. So how can we understand who God is? Well, God is chosen by the foolishness of preaching. Now, he's given us this word, and this is what we preach. This word we preach has in it the power of God, and by it we know God. And he says, It pleased God by the foolishness of preaching to save them that believe. For the Jews require a sign, and the Greeks seek after wisdom. But we preach Christ crucified. Unto the Jews a stumbling block, and unto the Greeks foolishness. But unto them which are called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ, the power of God, and the wisdom of God. Jesus Christ is the revelation of the wisdom of God. Of God. Because the foolishness of God is wiser than men, and the weakness of God is stronger than men. And this is a bit after his manner of speaking in rhetorical terms by simply saying if we could conceive that God would be foolish, or if we could even conceive that God might in some way be weak it is still far above what any man could think to achieve, be it in wisdom or in power. And he says here, For ye see your calling, brethren, how that not many wise men after the flesh, not many mighty, not many noble are called. But God hath chosen the foolish things of the world to confound the wise And God hath chosen the weak things of the world to confound the things that are mighty. And base things of the world, and things which are despised, hath God chosen, yea, and things which are not, to bring to naught things that are, that no flesh should glory in his presence. But of him are ye in Christ Jesus, who of God is made unto us wisdom, and righteousness, and sanctification, and redemption, that according as it is written, he that glorieth, let him glory in the Lord. Now he started this discourse by referring to their dissensions and their contentions that seemed to focus on certain characters and certain men they wanted to follow. But he's rather pointing them to the wisdom of God. And here in chapter 2 he continues by saying, And I, brethren, when I came to you, came not with excellency of speech or of wisdom, declaring unto you the testimony of God. For I determined not to know anything among you save Jesus Christ and him crucified. And I was with you in weakness and in fear and in much trembling. And my speech and my preaching was not with enticing words of man's wisdom, but in demonstration of the Spirit and of power, that your faith should not stand in the wisdom of men, but in the power of God. Howbeit, he says, we speak wisdom among them that are perfect, yet not the wisdom of this world nor of the princes of this world that come to naught. 
But we speak the wisdom of God in a mystery, even the hidden wisdom which God ordained before the world unto our glory, which none of the princes of this world knew, for had they known it, they would not have crucified the Lord of glory. But as it is written, I have not seen nor ear heard, neither have entered into the heart of man the things which God hath prepared for them that love him. But God hath revealed them unto us by his Spirit. For the Spirit searcheth all things, yea, the deep things of God. Now here's an astounding glimpse into the spirit world where it's telling us that if these powers of darkness had known what God's plan really was, they would not have crucified the Lord of glory. So even though man has a certain amount of wisdom which comes only from God, a fear of God is the beginning of wisdom, and the men who do not fear God and yet claim wisdom is simply the wisdom of this world. It's not after God. And beyond man are the spirits, which I believe are in many ways superior to us in understanding, or in some areas at least, not all areas, but in some. But even those, the princes of this world, if they had known, they would not have crucified the Lord of glory. But God in wisdom allowed all this, had it planned, had that sacrifice of his son planned, even gave type of it many, many years before in faithful Abraham and Isaac. And in verse 9, I hath not seen nor ear heard, neither have entered into the heart of man the things which God hath prepared for them that love him. And we often think of that about the eternal glories to come. And it would be true of that, but he says here, God hath revealed them unto us by his Spirit. We can have knowledge of the Spirit of God because he's revealed it to us by his Word and by the cross. Verse 11, for what man knoweth the things of a man save the spirit of man which is in him? Even so the things of God knoweth no man but the spirit of God. Now we have received not the spirit of the world, but the spirit which is of God, that we might know the things that are freely given to us of God. Which things also we speak, not in the words which man's wisdom teacheth, but which the Holy Ghost teacheth comparing spiritual things with spiritual. Now there he's giving us a very practical detail about how we should think about things and how we should discern them. We should compare spiritual things with spiritual. 
It's not after man's wisdom, but it's after God's wisdom. And then he says in verse 14, But the natural man receiveth not the things of the Spirit of God, for they are foolishness unto him, neither can he know them, because they are spiritually discerned. But he that is spiritual judgeth all things, yet he himself is judged of no man. For who hath known the mind of the Lord, that he may instruct him? Again, a rhetorical question. We can instruct him because we don't understand the fullness of his mind, but it says we have the mind of Christ. We have the mind of Christ. And then he goes into chapter 3. And I'd like to continue there. As he says, I, brethren, could not speak unto you as unto spiritual, but as unto carnal, even as unto babes in Christ. I have fed you with milk and not with meat, for hitherto ye were not able to bear it, neither yet now are ye able. Now that was rather strong words. And what we can draw from it is that there is in us a tendency to be so spiritually dull that we cannot receive the strong meat that God would like to give to us. Then he says, For ye are yet carnal, for whereas there is among you envying and strife and divisions, are ye not carnal and walk as men? And while one saith, I am of Paul, and another, I am of Apollos, are ye not carnal? Who then is Paul, and who is Apollos? But ministers by whom ye believed, even as the Lord gave to every man. I have planted, Apollos watered, but God gave the increase. You know, that's true, that there's a spiritual truth there. And he goes on to say, So then neither is he that planteth anything, neither he that watereth, but God that giveth the increase. It has pleased God to set in order things in the church. And he gave gifts. And he gives to one man this gift and to another man this gift. And he likens it to a body where all work together for the good of that body to make increase and, and to grow. And so Paul is saying here, neither he that planteth anything, neither he that watereth, but God that giveth the increase. Just to expand on that a bit, I have, as I mentioned before, taken a bit of renewed interest in gardening, and, and I have what I call my garden. 
And I could take you out there and show you some amazing plants. But you know, the basic principle is that we simply seek to cultivate after a manner that produces good growth because we don't, I can't make it grow. I planted it. I water it from time to time. I tend it. I do certain things that I think will aid in its development, but I cannot make it grow. Those tomatoes go from a little spot to a big one while I'm away at work and while I sleep. And I finally come out there and it turned red. I know not how, but there it is. Now, God has given us knowledge about cultivation. If you don't cultivate, you won't harvest. That's a pretty basic law. Oh, there's certain limited things you can harvest that you didn't sow and so on. But if you really want to harvest, then figure out how it needs to be tended and cultivated, what you should plant, where and how, and all those things. And you can plant and you can water, but it's God that gives the increase. And so it is in the church of God. We labor. One labors after this manner. One labors after that manner. And together it should grow into a holy habitation of God through the wisdom of God. Not after man's wisdom, but after God. And then he says here in verse... uh, Eight. Now he that planteth and he that watereth are one. And every man shall receive his own reward according to his own labor. For we are laborers together with God. Ye are God's husbandry. Ye are God's building. According to the grace of God which is given unto me as a wise master builder, I have laid the foundation and another buildeth thereon. But let every man take heed how he buildeth thereupon. For other foundation can no man lay that is laid, which is Jesus Christ. Now if any man build upon this foundation gold, silver, precious stones, wood, hay, stubble, every man's work shall be made manifest. For the day shall declare it, because it shall be revealed by fire. And the fire shall try every man's work of what sort it is. If any man's work abide, which he hath built thereupon, he shall receive a reward. If any man's work shall be burned, he shall suffer loss. But he himself shall be saved, but so as by fire. Now there's some very deep verities here that I can't, explain. But I think it would be profitable for all of us to meditate on them deeply as we meditate before the Lord. Other foundation can no man lay than that is laid, which is Jesus Christ. That should become a bedrock thought for us. And then he goes on to talk about building and building materials. 
And then in the end of verse 13, a very sobering truth, he says, the fire shall try every man's work of what sort it is. Isn't that sobering? The fire shall try every man's work. It means mine, yours, everyone's. I don't understand all of that, really. But I want it ingrained deeply in my thinking and heart that the fire is going to try every man's work of what sort it is. That makes it very important how we build. If any man's work shall be burned, he shall suffer loss, but he himself shall be saved, yet so as by fire. Know ye not that ye are the temple of God, and that the Spirit of God dwelleth in you? If any man defile the temple of God, him shall God destroy. For the temple of God is holy, which temple ye are. Now that's very sobering also. What is the temple of God? We answer it simply by saying, which temple ye are. Now he's giving it here in the plural. Ye are the temple. And I have often read this or just thinking casually over it as I read that he's referring to an individual. There is a sense, I think, in which that applies. But the way it's written here, it could also be in the plural because the scripture refers to both an individual's uh, as being the temple of the Holy Ghost. The Holy Ghost dwells within us, but it also speaks of the church of God as a temple of the living God. So whether it's individual, whether it's collectively speaking about the church of God, I think both could apply. But in either case, he makes this sobering statement that if any man defile the temple of God, him shall God destroy. Isn't that a terrible thing? If any of us should be found short or be destroying the temple of God, now. He moves back again then to this thing of wisdom. In verse 18, let no man deceive himself. If any man among you seemeth to be wise in this world, let him become a fool that he may be wise. For the wisdom of this world is foolishness with God. For it is written, he taketh the wise in their own craftiness. And again, the Lord knoweth the thoughts of the wise, that they are vain. Therefore, let no man glory in men, for all things are yours, whether Paul, or Apollos, or Cephas, or the world, 
or life or death or things present or things to come, all are yours. And ye are Christ's and Christ is God's. Amazing. Let's let the wisdom of God be at work among us and be in awe of his wisdom. I will conclude with that.